Um, today I want to tell you a true story of a captain, just like that Captain Hancock, who was heading for the lighthouse and indeed actually went full keel into the lighthouse and learned a serious lesson, that there is a God and he was not it. A lesson that all of us can learn too, a lesson that we learn about God and actually learn about God's sovereignty in our lives in a good way, that God rules in our life, uh, not just as a God that, uh, that condemns, but a God that gave everything for us and humbled himself. The captain's name is King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylonia. There he is. The, the title of this message is The King Who Ate Grass. Another name of it, I debated this week, asked my wife, the story of two sovereigns going up against each other. Well, maybe this one will stick a little bit more. Maybe you've heard this story, maybe you haven't. Um, it's not a very popular story in the Bible, but it's one that I think that you'll remember forever if you hear it. It's in Daniel chapter 4. The story is not printed out for you in full in your service folder because it's very long. But if you want to open your Bible app or open the Bible in front of you to Daniel chapter 4, I put the key uh, verses in front of you so that we can read through those on page 9 and 10 in the service folder, also up on the screen. You can take notes as we go along. His name, King Nebuchadnezzar II. He lived around 600 B.C. We know uh, from history and from the Bible. Both speak about the same King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he was known famously for his green thumb, actually. Do you know what he built? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, right? We have our history buffs over there. And this was uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world at that time. It was incredible, and he was responsible for it. So he's, he's an intelligent man. He's very cultural, um, and he's very powerful, too. In fact, he has one of the most formidable armies in the whole world, uh, just a couple of years before this, this text in Daniel 4, he has overthrown um, the Egyptians, which is a very powerful army. And at that time, the kingdom of Judah, now the Bible-believing people, kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, they had paid tribute over to Egypt. This is kind of just an interesting history thing. But as soon as Nebuchadnezzar came in and crushed Egypt, it's funny how this happens, they switched allegiances real quick to Nebuchadnezzar because they knew what was coming. By the time Nebuchadnezzar had knocked on uh, Judah's door in Jerusalem, it was more of an afterthought that he was going to take over the city. He already had them in his pocket. And so what did he do? He overthrew the Jewish king, Jeconiah. He replaced him with a puppet king. He better, uh, he lacked for a better word, raped the temple in Jerusalem, taking everything out of it and taking it back for himself in Babylon. He kidnapped 10,000 of the Jewish elite class, the people that were educated, the people that had influence, the people that had money, and he took them back to his land and inserted them into his economy because he wanted his economy to thrive, leaving Jerusalem without a king, without a temple, without any kind of leadership, and very, very poor. Only the poor remained. Not a nice man. And he had termites in his smile. Little, little known fact about him. He was so bad that, uh, he was, uh, that he took all of these people back, and he not just took them back, but then he employed them uh, in his own land, and he changed their culture, so to speak. Uh, he, he took uh, Daniel and all of his friends were part of that 10,000 people that were brought into Babylon. Uh, he brought them back into Babylon, and Daniel, uh, being bright and brilliant, as all Daniels are, was groomed 
to be in a cabinet position for Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel and his friends, this is Daniel's chapters 1 through 3, are being groomed. They're, they're being told how to think, how to act, and they have a constant conflict of faith and politics. Some of the famous stories. Nebuchadnezzar tells them to eat food, the king's food. But instead, Daniel and his friends, what do they do? They eat according to their conscience and according to what their religion at that time told them that they should eat, what their faith led them to do. And that came in conflict with this mighty, mighty king. Um, they had, uh, faith and politics came into uh, conflict when Nebuchadnezzar built a big statue and he said, everybody bow down to it. What did Daniel and his friends do? They didn't bow down to it. They prayed when they wanted to against the king's command. And Nebuchadnezzar was floored for two reasons. Number one, nobody says no to King Nebuchadnezzar unless you want to sleep with the fish. And number two, never before had he seen people be so defiant in his face and succeed. They not just went against what he said, but they actually were thriving against his will. And the interesting thing is, is as much as that frustrated King Nebuchadnezzar, he was floored by it because greatness recognizes itself, doesn't it? He recognizes that he's met his match as far as it comes to this Hebrew God that's preserving um, these, this Daniel and his friends. And so from time to time throughout the book of Daniel, he praises God and he says, you have a great God. I can't even go up against your God. Your God is crushing me. He also forgets from time to time that he's going up against the Hebrew God, the, the God Almighty, the God who is sovereign. And so it's with that background in chapter 4, we have before us something that um, one scholar that I read this week pointed out that I had never thought of before is the only chapter in the Bible penned by a pagan. It's actually written in the first person. Daniel takes this first person narrative and he puts it into scripture to prove to us the story about God's sovereignty over this mighty, mighty king. And that's why it says what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar is penning this, uh, for lack of a better term, press release. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. You can see his pride right there a little bit. You know, his influence goes across the whole world, every nation, all the earth. In modern terms, he has more followers than Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift combined. And so when he speaks, that word goes out to everybody. Um, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. In other words, he's had a life-altering, a life-changing event, an encounter with God that changes him forever. And he says that God is doing something for him. And so God is at work in his life and performed for him. Um, he has been graded, G-R-E-A, T-E-D, by the greatest. The great one has been graded. And he wants to tell the story. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. In other words, he's saying, my kingdom has been out-kingdomed. I've won garden of the year every year until now. And now I've learned that there's a greater kingdom out there. And that greater kingdom is the kingdom of this most high God that I had an encounter with. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, and he really was. The walls of his city were bigger than any walls built at that time. They were wider, they were taller. The technology, the culture, the, uh, the economy 
was better than any other. And he's enjoying this. He's at the helm of this ship. And then he says, I had a dream that made me afraid. We learn in the next couple of verses that the dream that he has keeps him up all night. He can't sleep. He calls in all of his advisors, all of the magicians, all of the enchanters, all of the astrologists, all the wise men that he didn't already put to death from an earlier chapter. He brings them all in from across the land, and he tells them his dream. These men were known for interpreting dreams, and they can't. They try to. They listen to his dream. They can't interpret it. Either they can't or they won't want to tell him the news that they should tell him if they did know because it was ominous. The dream was ominous. Finally, it says in verse 8, finally Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. I'm always shocked by that word, finally. Why? Because two chapters earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nobody could interpret it. And who came in and interpreted it? Daniel did. The lesson for us, how quickly we forget about God's wisdom and we employ human wisdom, how quickly we run back to the places that, that we, we go to and we don't get the answers that we need, but then all along, God has his wisdom out and God's wisdom is available for us. Finally, he remembers that there is an answer. And that answer that has come to him in the past is the wisdom that Daniel pointed to. And he says, the wisdom comes from my God that gives it to me. So he finally goes to him and he brings Daniel in. He puts in a side note. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God. You can see his arrogance there. Maybe he's trying to compliment Daniel saying, I'm going to give you this really cool name of my favorite God because you're so wise. Daniel, again, always gives credit to his God, the Lord God in heaven. Anyways, he says, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He recognizes something in Daniel that's different than all of his other advisors. My question for you is, is it possible that in the world today, although the heathen or although the unbeliever can't put their finger on it, they see a cool and a calm and a collected Christian among a sea of turbulence in this world. Maybe it's happened to you before, where you've had somebody that you didn't expect to come to you in a time when their world was being rocked, when they were being kept up all night thinking about something, and they come to you because they know that you have a peace that transcends all of their, all of their understanding. And maybe they mistaken you and they say, well, you have something in you. I can't put my, my finger on it. Nebuchadnezzar says, the holy gods are in him but they know that it's there. And could God be putting you in that position right now to be a Daniel in somebody's life? So finally he goes to Daniel and he tells Daniel his dream. Here's the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming and he sees a tree in the middle of the land. And this tree is growing higher and wider than anything that he's ever seen in his life before. It reaches to the heavens and it reaches out to the ends of the earth. The branches are big, they're bold, they're beautiful. The branches have fruit on them. And in these branches are birds of every kind. And underneath the branches are animals. They're enjoying the shelter, they're enjoying the sustenance of this tree and its huge branches. A voice comes from heaven that commands that that tree's branches all be cut down at once. And that's exactly what happens. They're all cut down, leaving only the stump. It's desolate. 
And this stump has iron around it that keeps it bolted to the ground like it's not going to move. And then uh, it's this tree image, this, this stump image, as in most weird dreams, like dreams that you or I might have, turns into the analogy of a man. And it says in verse 15, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign. That's a key verse right there. Bold, highlight, and underline. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is Nebuchadnezzar telling the dream to Daniel. He ends and he says, that's it. That's the dream. He looks at Daniel's face. And then Nebuchadnezzar sees the concern on Daniel's face and he says, don't say bad news. (laughs) Don't be alarmed. What's happening? Because no doctor likes to tell the patient that it's cancer. Daniel says to the king with concern, and I want to say that again, with concern on his heart. He's talking to a bad banana with a greasy black peel and he has concern on his heart for this despot for this king. He cares for him enough, not just to give him his ear, but to interpret the dream and to give him guidance. Because he knows that God's grace goes out to all people, and he knows God has a big plan through this King Nebuchadnezzar to to bring this nation of Israel, not to destroy them, but to bring them all the way to the time that there would be a Messiah that would come from it. And so he looks at the king, and with concern in his heart, he interprets the dream. He says, seven times, and I put in the word years because we know in context that's what we're talking about, will pass by for you until you acknowledge, here's the key again, that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept, accept my advice. Stop right there. Verse 18, the king calls in Daniel and he says what? Interpret the dream. Could it be possible that Daniel recognizes that it's more important not just to be the ear for a friend, but also to guide the friend? Because he gives unsolicited advice here to the king. Could it be that God has put you in a position not just to be the ear for somebody, but to also tell them the truth and to guide them? And so Daniel speaks up for the truth and and advises this king, not just talks to him. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Sovereign is an above reign. That's what that word sovereign means. It comes from the word super in Latin, sov, and then reign. Super reign. doesn't take much translation to understand that means that there's one above and that there's one below. And the one above isn't challenged by the one below. The one above isn't challenged not because it says, don't challenge me, but that the one below can't challenge the one above because the one above is so powerful. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's familiar with the word sovereign. He's sovereign over all these nations on earth, isn't he? 
But here's what he gets wrong. He's sovereign, he believes, and he's going after a power that he doesn't have, the power of God. And so the arrow goes from Nebuchadnezzar over God and he doesn't even realize it. He doesn't realize that all the kingdoms that he has, all of the money, all of the wealth, all of the, the, the power that he possesses is actually a gift from God. And he's put himself over God in all of those ways. And before we shake our finger at Nebuchadnezzar, just think about this for a second. Have you ever struck a deal with God before? Maybe you have a big test coming up on Monday. It's Saturday. And you think to yourself, I got that big test coming up on Monday. I better go to church tomorrow. I want God to see that I'm with him, that, that he's on my side. Right, God? You got me on this test. I'm going to show up to early. I'm going to show up to Bible class. I'm going to show up to late. I'm going to be there all the time because, God, I really need you on my side. You know what you're doing? You're treating God like a pandering slave, like a pathetic Santa Claus. You know, Santa Claus, he strikes deals with the good kids, and then he gives the bad kids coal in their stocking. God, more serious note, I have an MRI coming up, and I haven't been as loving as I thought that I should be, and maybe that's why you're, you're, you're scaring me here. You're keeping me up all night. So God, I'm going to go do service projects. I'm going to finally go and volunteer in that position that pastor's been asking me to volunteer in. And yes, we do need Sunday school teachers. You know what you're doing? You're treating God like a puppet. Like, I'm going to do something, God, because I'm in control of this world, so you need to do a favor back to me. We find ourselves, like, more similar to Nebuchadnezzar than we like to admit, even though we don't have Garden of the Year. We treat God just like he does by putting ourselves on top and putting God on the bottom. Okay, that's the end of the dream scene. Twelve months later, a year later, a lot can be forgotten in a year. Nebuchadnezzar goes about his life, and twelve. Uh, turn your page to page 10. Twelve months later, one year, Nebuchadnezzar is on his roof. And I don't know what this thing is with kings always being on their roofs. David was on his roof. Maybe they like to sunbathe up there, or I don't know. But he's overlooking all of his gardens, all of his kingdom, all of his wealth. And he says the, this, in complete defiance to the words of Daniel, uh, 12 months earlier, Nebuchadnezzar said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Isn't power addictive? For those people in power, it scares them to death to lose it. For those people who don't have power... They're constantly going after more. In fact, even those who have power are going after more and more and more. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he doesn't have the ultimate power, but he starts saying that he does because he's pursuing the power of the sovereign God now. And he's saying, look at what I've created with my hands. Look at how much I have in control. And as he's saying these words, in fact, before the words even finish coming out of his mouth, it happens. I had a, a, a physics professor in high school. We took physics in 11th grade. His name was Professor Jeffers. I'll never forget what he said when he was teaching us the first law of Newton's laws of motion. He said, a junior in high school stays, stays at rest asleep in his desk first hour on a Monday morning, Sally knows what I'm talking about, until acted upon by an immovable force, my foot. 
Did he say that to your class too? Yeah, okay. So I have a fact checker here. There you go. I love that phrase because that's what's about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what's about to happen to him. He's about to get God's foot. As soon as the words come out of his mouth, what happens? He loses his brain completely. Everything Daniel prophesies comes true. His mind is turned from a mind of a man into a mind of an animal. He leaves his palace and he goes out into the wilderness and begins on all fours, we just we got to assume, to eat grass like a cow. And he lived this way for seven years, seven times, Daniel said. His hair grew out long, it says, like the feathers of an eagle, really long. And his fingernails and his toenails grew thick and long like the claws of an eagle. God did this to him. God worked this miracle to make this happen as soon as this ship was coming towards the lighthouse. The condition is recognized today as lycanthropy, something that I learned just recently. Uh, Lycanthropy is the psychological disorder where a human brain believes that it's actually an animal. And it's been recorded, and it's been observed in mental institutions. Um, Today, it comes from, uh, originally it means, lycanthropy literally means wolf man, and it means that your mind has turned into this kind of a state where there's no reality except for the reality that you are an animal. Originally, it was the superstition because people would observe this back like in the Middle Ages, and then there became the superstition called the werewolf, where people would turn into a wolf at nighttime. That's a superstition that came out of this truthful condition. And today, people, lycanthropy can refer to people uh, acting like birds, cats, dogs, whatever it is. They're not acting for fun. They're acting because they're seriously, seriously sick. Why do I tell you that? I just thought that was interesting. But it really did happen. In fact, there's this uh, scholar in 1946 named R.K. Harrison. He went to a British mental institution and he observed a patient that was acting exactly like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He was going around on his hands and his knees, drinking water, eating grass, and the only physical difference was that he had long hair and he had thick, long fingernails. And so, it happens. And God made it happen. And it's disgusting to see that the highest power, earthly power in the world, went from so ultra-human to so subhuman. As we laugh at what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, or cry over it, or think about how ridiculous it is that a human being would, would wander around like an animal for seven years, think with me about our life. God has created you to be the crown of his creation, it says in Genesis. He's created you to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, where the Holy Spirit dwells. And yet, we treat our bodies like animals, don't we? How and why would a a believer that's a temple of the Holy Spirit, a married man, a married woman, or even a single person, share their bodies with somebody that's not their spouse? That's animal-like. That's what they do in the animal kingdom. Not the crown of creation. Not the temple of God. Uh, We might think it's ridiculous that he's crawling around on his hands and knees. But how often do we live in an alpha dog-eat-dog world? (laughs) 
and we go from one trip to another, whether it's a trip from a pipe or it's a trip from power, we devour each other with our words and with our actions. That's not human. That's animal-like. We're no better than the picture on the screen. How often have we taken God, who is sovereign, whose word is eternal and right, and we've said, well, God, you're up there, but I don't like that part of you, and I don't like that part of you, and we've turned him into our slave, and we've dissected his word and taken things out of his word that we don't like because it's offensive. Are we any better than King Nebuchadnezzar? Sadly, no, not in our worst moments because we're sinful by nature. And we, by nature, are on a power trip to take over God's power. Why in the Garden of Eden did they want to go after power, God's wisdom, when God said, I've given you everything? There he is, and now, after seven years, he remembers Daniel's words. He says, when you lift your eyes to heaven, repent. Repent, and everything will be restored to you. Do you remember that, that stump with the iron around it? God said, I hold out to you that there is redemption, that I'm not going to let that stump be removed, that I'm going to keep it there, and I want to restore for you everything. And so verse 34 says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Sovereignty means there's one above and one below. And when you're below and you're crushed and you're eating grass, there's only one place to look, and that's up to heaven. My sanity was restored. There is restoration with the God of the Bible. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's response out of that was this. After he's been lifted up by the sovereign God, then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. In other words, that arrow that goes down now, that's been completely changed around. Not because of anything Nebuchadnezzar did, not because of anything Nebuchadnezzar earned, not because Nebuchadnezzar was striking deals with Santa Claus. It was turned around because of grace. Do you see it? He lifts his eyes to heaven and he's restored completely. And so that tells us something about our sovereign God, doesn't it? Our sovereign God's not up there acting like a a despot or like a Fidel Castro and and is is oppressing and, and, and demanding. But our God is above and he wants to know that, us to know that he's above. Why? Because he wants to give grace And he's the only one that can give eternal grace. And so why would he humble us? He would humble us because he wants us to repent, to give it up, to give up this this scheme that I think that I'm in charge, that I think that I am God. He wants us to give it up. He isn't a despot, and I have proof of that, because he also came down from heaven. And he humbled himself more than he actually humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't take Nebuchadnezzar's life away. But God was pleased enough to do this. God is overlooking his kingdom from his porch, from his roof, and he sees how fallen and pathetic that we really are. And do you know what he said? He said, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to go down there and become one of them. That's what Christmas is all about. Incarnation is the word that we use. God becoming man. I'm going to come down there and I'm going to humble myself, Philippians says, even to the point of a servant. No, not just a servant. I'm going to humble myself even to death. And there on that cross, stripped of his clothes, hanging for the whole world to see, he made a press release. 
And it wasn't just a press release for all of these nations at this time of history. It was a press release for the whole world and for all times. He made his humiliation so public because he desires that all men and women be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So let me be your Daniel. If you are eating grass, lift up your eyes to heaven and you have forgiveness. You have God's eternal promises. He's given you eternal life, but he's given you even more than that. He has given you access to the most high God and so you can praise him. There's a couple of verses that I want to read together. The first one is Psalm 121, verse 1. Let's read this together. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then the next one is Psalm 145, 14. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. It's good to have a God, and it's good that it's not you, because you can't lift that load, but he can. He's given you everything that you need, including eternal life, so what does this mean? What does it mean for me now that I have God, the sovereign God, who's more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar on my side? It means that instead of coming to worship, worrying whether I'm going to be accepted or whether I'm going to get the good grade or get the promotion, if I can make God happy, I'm going to come to worship to do what? To praise him, to thank him, to, to, to tell him uh, that I'm grateful for everything that he's given me. I'm going to come together in, I'm not going to just do devotions and prayer and all that stuff because I think I need to get right with God or, I, or the, the test results are coming back next week and I better get it right. I know that I lift my eyes up to him and I come to him in prayer because he gives me everything that I need he gives me everything that I need from the clothes on my back to the car that brought me here today to the air, air conditioning and the heat that, that keeps me comfortable and I can praise him. I know that I can go to small groups, not because Pastor Dan says so or anybody else, but I go to small groups because he says in his word, don't stop, don't give up meeting together, but do it all the more as you see, see the day approaching. He's coming back and he wants us to be mutually uh, edified together. That's why I want to do it. And, and, and he wants to put me in the places of, like Daniel, to be at the ear of Nebuchadnezzar. Not because um, I have to, but because he's put me there. And if he had the, Daniel's back to speak those words to a king, he has your back too, to speak those words into the lives of people in your community. Some scholars debate whether King Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven or not. What do you think? Well, you can let his words judge for themselves, and I wouldn't be surprised to see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday, as confused as he was in his ancient world of gods, because he had an encounter with the true God. You've had an encounter with the true God, too. He's brought you from darkness to light. He's given you life, and he's all-powerful in your life. Let these words be the last words um, of the sermon and the last words of Daniel chapter 4. Let's read this together. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar... Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble and thank God he is able to do all things. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for opening our eyes in Daniel chapter 4 to your greatness. 
this week um, past, we have for so many times taken this world into our own hands and believed that we need to be sovereign in order for this world to work around us. Humble us now in repentance. We're sorry and change our ways. Help us to live for who you created us to be this week and help us to live under your sovereignty completely, knowing that you protect us, you go with us, and like Daniel, you have our back. Uh, In the times that we're humbled, help us to lift up our eyes to heaven to find our identity again as your beloved child. Now we go and we worship in your name. Amen.